see you back here with the Looking Glass Forum. We're working hard to illuminate your minds and bring the truth of the understanding of history and science and philosophy. And uh, thank you for coming back again. So we're back here again at the Looking Glass Forum, and I appreciate you guys returning again to listen to these episodes and to take in these different kinds of aspects of history that you will never hear. And I enjoy finding these new dimensions within the historical subject matter. So I really, I would like to have feedback. I enjoy the criticism. I like to have kind of an understanding of what people are hearing when they're when they're listening to these episodes. And what I am attempting to do is to try to properly place America, our new kind of fresh civilization, in the the scope of world history. And we can go back pretty far and see that we're rising as as a people out of the ashes and the wars and the barbarity and the chaos of the distant past. And this question of the distant past and the origins of man is a continuous question. It's a a continuous question that people have asked in different scientific disciplines to discuss where is man coming from. Anthropologically, archaeologically, they've even found Ur of the Chaldees, a very ancient city in Mesopotamia that would lead to the rise of Babylonia. And so we have to ask ourselves, how did we enter into the fossil record of history? And of course, it really comes down to a lack of knowledge. People don't fully understand or comprehend, even with our great marvelous intellect. We cannot recompile the sands of time in order to tell us or to give us a clue as to where we might find our origins. Some people believe that we were just protoplasm and evolutionary junk were just amoebas that crawled out of the ocean and grew hair became monkeys and became men and that's a really easy and less interesting treatment of the facts we have to find a way to arrive here in the world in the natural order of things we have to discover a way to understand ourselves we can look back in the distant past the cambrian period for instance we can go back millions of years in a geological record we can see that the isotopes half-life is only 60,000 years or we can kind of determine that a lot of tectonic shifts and a lot of activity within the earth earth's crust has been constant there's no doubt about it you can look over the grand canyon you can look over different areas of geology and see that there's been a vast history unfolding here on earth long before mankind comes into the fossil record and also it's equally as compelling to try to explain how there are living organisms in the first place so it's it could be understood that there's matter in the universe and that that matter could ignite and create stars and that those ignitions of matter could explode and create tiny chunks of rock and other matter and this is inert lifeless minerals different particles that make up the atomic chart elements and so that's where we're at with our knowledge beyond that how amoebas could come into existence develop complex information cells like rna and dna actually have functions of processing light into energy and absorbing raw matter and for fuel and then having the reproductive mechanisms within themselves to replicate over and over and over again and reproduce and have sex with a male and female counterpart when they they want to start out with 
single cell amoebas that are asexual and then they split apart and they have male and female sexual components. But how did that become a vast array of moss? I have Spanish moss still stuck in my door when I closed the door this morning in my car. So it's hanging there. It makes me think, how did we get Spanish moss? And the little piece of the leaf that's stuck with the, the branch that's with it. How do we get a leaf? How do we get Spanish moss intergrowing with leaves? The little frogs that live in there, the birds that sweep down and they fly. They fly around, these creatures fly around. Not just birds, but pterodactyls flew. And flying squirrels fly. And flying insects fly. And all manner of flying fish fly. How did, how did these mechanisms of evolution develop without any kind of consciousness or intelligence all these traits that would allow them to fly. So we can see that nature adapts. The owl flies and the uh, turns brown in the summer and turns white in the winter. The foliage changes. They have other animals, species that do the same thing. They don't, they don't change, but polar bears are white and grizzly bears are not. So we can see that even more astonishing within the cell and then the genetic activity and the mechanisms, the species have the ability to adapt slightly to their environment. And so it's a very interesting puzzle. Evolutionary proponents, evolutionary Darwin's evolutionary theory are gonna say that, well, hey, if they can adapt a little bit over time, then perhaps these species could change entirely from a reptile, a dinosaur species, to, you know, like a pterodactyl into like a flying feathered species like the bird, just tiny changes, tiny adapta adaptations over time. Millions and millions of years. And so this is the prevailing theory, that somehow the universe can manufacture life all by itself, just given these different elements and given enough time, you don't need a God anymore. You don't need any kind of creative force. We're just out here spinning wildly on planet Earth for millions of years without any, any conscious life. And just by accident, the universe tips off life in this grand scale. Plants, animals, fish, all different variety of innumerable. And then we, it really hasn't really gotten to a full scientific understanding of bacteria, parasites that live inside the guts of animals. So there's a, a wide complexity, myriad, life forms. And it gets even more remarkable when we go into the fossil record and we look at eons past all the different life forms that have never survived. And we arrive at this point where all the prehistoric life forms have are gone and we have this select set of animals living on the earth. And then suddenly in the fossil record arrives man. So this is a, a, an incredible mystery that we have to really have more respect for. And in the attempt to try to grasp our origins and to take control of our own reality and to have a claim on our own life, our own soul. If you, if we were created by a higher power, then we don't have ownership of our own soul and our own reality. We're just simply the property of another. So it's an attempt to take back our own minds and our own destiny to say, hey, we're, we're, we're our own thing. We don't have to try to comprehend an original cause to this, all of this effect. We don't need to find out who it is we owe our lives and our natural existence to. We just simply have to take this life and it's ours to do what we want with it. There's the difference in the attitude. If everything is evolved, it comes from nothing, then nothing means anything. There is no great justice in the universe at the end of time. There's no reckoning. There's no great grand scales. There's no great judgment. It's just, just nothing. It's nihilism. So every class of ideology and belief system in the world will gravitate towards nihilism because it fits their, their presupposition and their paradigm that stipulates that there is no divine creator, there's no grand scale of creation, there's no actual meaning behind all the phenomenon of nature. And so they'll presuppose that all the meaning that we take and all the 
our perception of complexity from design is only illusory and so creates a delusion that somehow this place has some kind of marvelous, meaningful background drama that's taking place. And um, this was something that was always believed, even by ancient man, the Greeks, um, ancient civilizations believed that there were the gods. That there must be some supernatural power, some incredibly phenomenalistic forces of deliberate and miraculous energy that's compulsing the universe and, and t- turning all the spheres, all the, the galaxies and all the, the planetary bodies must have some kind of grand meaning. And so as we're kind of moving through this, this philosophical dilemma, we have to wonder what is the meaning? And, and, and if there is no meaning and we're just really just functioning on a biological level, then there must be no justice in the universe. So if, you know, the gazelle in the Serengeti is taken by the lion, and if that's all we are, just biological functions and the, and the, and the strong kill and, and take from the weak, and there's no moral absoluteness to the universe, then we have no reason to be civilized. We have no reason to tell the truth. We have no reason to believe that there's a deity who issued Ten Commandments for our good, that if we follow them, we'll have a more complete and peaceful and productive life and more happy life if we follow the plan of the Creator. So those who believe in nihilism will deny that there's any such grand plan and there's any, any real meaning. So for them, every kind of reprobate behavior, every kind of perverse sexual indiscretion, every kind of crime is really just nothing moral. It's really just an act of one animal, like a bear attacking a lion or a lion eating a gazelle, or it's just a function of nature and has really no real underlying spiritual consequences. So in other words, we who are religious like to think that when Hitler dies, he'll go to face his judgment and the consequences of his actions in life will be levied on him. And those who believe in nihilism and, and Darwinian evolution believe that there is no cosmic grand judgment and Hitler just goes into the darkness, into the silence of into the sleep of death, and he just disappears from existence and he has nothing more, he has nothingness, just like all the victims of the Holocaust, they were just, they, they died and became nothing into the shadow of death and there's no grand accounting for all that evil and there is and since there is no god there is no evil or good it's just he, he hitler was the strong man he was the lion and all the, the 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 victims in auschwitz were just the gazelles and they just were the victims and this is just the way of life and so you can see that those who believe in this nihilistic evolutionary process or the meaninglessness of life have no qualms about taking absolute power because ultimately that's all there is in their point of view. So let's go a little more deeper into this kind of complex discussion and hear this interesting audio clip that we have here. This is kind of an introductory uh, theme to the whole idea that we're discussing and it's going to be Ben Stein on Hanvey and Combs. And then I think it's an older clip, obviously, but it's an interesting breakdown of the film that Ben Stein did called Expelled. And it just takes a look at the kind of growing move towards what people call creationism or the design hypothesis that, that, that brings into to our attention the notion that single cell, the living cells within living organisms, our organs and our tissues, and the complexity of living biology itself in plant 
can't, the plant uh, forms and the creatures in the ocean that it represents a biocomplexity and a physio physiological complexity that's so sophisticated and interlocked systems are so completely molecularly interlocked that they can't possibly have arisen from evolutionary dynamics in other words there's no way for one system to build upon the other without the entire and complete working order of the systems that they're built on so they couldn't evolve out of one another all right so let's listen to this clip here this is ben stein about a gradual descent down the level of intelligibility until we reach evolutionary biology. We don't even know what a species is, for heaven's sakes. So his theory is smoke, but elegant smoke. There's a certain elegance to it, but you know, I think Einstein had the appropriate remark. He preferred to leave elegance to his tailor. That was a clip of Ben Stein's new documentary, Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed. The film offers an in-depth look at science of the 21st century, specifically the scientific community's obsession uh, with evolution and the great lengths it will go to to discredit intelligent design or uh, the religious view of creation. Here to talk about the film is actor and author, among other things, very unique career you've had, Ben. Your first appearance, finally. I'm I'm I've been waiting for years. Uh, well, we were happy to have you. <laughs> We've been waiting for you for years. I'm happy now. <laughs> This is it. This yes, is the pinnacle. This is it. After all, you've done Ferris Bueller. Now. I've been on Ben Stein's money, Ferris Bueller, but this is it. This is it. All right. Uh, in this movie, yes. you go to a concentration camp where Mengele... We went, no, uh, we, we went uh, to Dachau, not Dachau. Okay, okay. okay. Uh, and you talk about Hitler influence, being influenced by Darwinism. No doubt about it. Uh, why, well, Hitler, what are you trying to say? Well, our point is that uh, Darwin, this meek, mild-mannered sage of a country estate outside London, uh, had ideas which, when implemented, uh, led to the Holocaust. He believed there were superior and inferior races. He believed that only fools would allow the inferior races to continue breeding. His followers and close friends in the United Kingdom said that, man, we should start exterminating the Jews. But are you implying that if you believe in evolution and Darwinism, that there's a link to the way Hitler not, thinks? Not today. There, not today, not today's Darwinists. No, not at all today's Darwinists. I mean, the leading Darwinists today, like Dawkins and Dennett, those people aren't even remotely in that league, but Darwinism gave the rationale for the Holocaust. There had always been anti-Semitism, there had always been racism, but to apply the idea of exterminating whole races as a good thing, as a thing that was salutary for the human race, that came out of Darwinism, and it, it's a frightening thing. Yeah, but it. it's not what Darwinists or people who believe in evolution think. That's no way that any of us who may believe that are close or anywhere near I that. Couldn't so that. I couldn't agree more. Right. I couldn't agree. I didn't say. I didn't imply. You would. You well, just by bringing up you Hitler, bringing up concentration camps in the you film, aren't no, you? You just implied it, Alan. But I that's didn't what you do in the film, no, you bring no, up Hitler. No, no, we brought it up about Darwin, not about you. Not about well, you but those who believe no, no, in evolution. No, you're just making that up. You just made that up. That's just not true at all. Why bring we, up Hitler? Because we, Hitler was a lineal descendant of Darwin. He wasn't a lineal descendant of Alan Colmes. I don't <laughs> think you were even alive. I understand, but the implication is there. Well, the implication is just an implication <laughs> you made up. All right, well, that's what I, the implication I got watching your movie. Uh, well, what, could there be a scientific explanation to the creation? Uh, of the world? I don't think that... Here's my point, that, or at least the point we make in the movie. There's no evidence whatsoever that Darwin had anything useful to say or anything to say, period, about how life began or how the universe began or how gravity began or how physics began or fluid motion or thermodynamics began. He had nothing to say about that whatsoever. So why attribute that to Darwinist causes? Why not say it's just as likely that there was an intelligent designer who did that? I mean, there's no yeah. reason to believe that there wasn't an intelligent designer who did it. Ben, welcome, welcome to the show. Good to Thank see you. you. Thank well, you. One of the things you 
are exposing in this movie is that educators, scientists, they're ridiculed, denied tenure, fired, because they believe that there is evidence of design. Yes, there. All you have to do, all you have to do, is say, "Look, how do the planets stand in orbits? How can a cell have a million or close to a million moving parts, all of which fit together perfectly without there being intelligent design?" All you have to do is ask the question, and you get fired. Not always, but often enough. You know, I, look, I, I've had many, many debates with with a lot of friends of mine over the issue of of creation. You know, late at night, nothing better to do. We talk about it, but it's important to me because I do believe that there is a creator. I believe I there's too. a God. You know, I don't know how one could look at the majesty and the sophistication and the intricacy of universes within universes and the sun and the stars and the gravity and, and all the beauty and majesty of creation and not conclude there's a God. I, I don't know how either. I mean, Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, Dawkins, uh, this great, great atheist and Darwinist, said, well, God has kept his existence hidden. He says that in our movie. But it's not hidden. All you have to do is look at the Grand Canyon. All you have to do is look at Lake Ponderay in North yeah. Idaho. All you have to do is look at a sunset on the island of Manhattan or a sunset in Malibu and you see the evidence of God all over. But to be an atheist, don't you have to believe that something comes from nothing? You have to believe that the universe originated in nothing and is rushing towards nowhere, and that just doesn't make any, any more sense. Let me just say, now people say to me all the time, but you have no scientific evidence for intelligent design. And it's true. We, we don't have a signature of an intelligent designer, except for the complexity itself is the signature. That it all could have, first of all, that it could have existed on its own, exploded in a massive explosion, and then with all the intricacies, yes. sophistication of it all, I mean, the chance of it are minuscule. We have mathematicians who say the chance is nil. So there we have it. We're just going to have that little clip to lay into the discussion itself. And it really goes into um, all the different facets of academic research and scientific discipline and all the different areas of study. I mean, it really ultimately becomes a philosophical discussion about what came first and how there could be a cause like the universe and with all the complexity of the, the elements and all the different laws of thermodynamics and all the different complexity within the universe, how that could arise on its own without an outside cause, without an original impetus to set all that into motion and actually invent and bring into being the complexity of the, the inner materials themselves, like the rocks, uh, all the uh, the debris that you see in the solar system around the planets, the, the, the debris that makes up the moon, the rocks themselves, how they could, that matter could actually come into existence and actually be there floating around where we could observe it without an original cause. So that's how we kind of begin our look into this really important discussion because it tells you more about yourself than it does about the universe how you look at this so it, you, you know if you believe that there is no god and there is no meaning and that all the rocks and all the blazing energy of the stars and all the complexity of the elemental record and then biological life here on earth if you could somehow look at that all that grand intricacy and think that it just popped into being on layer upon layer of physical dynamics like gravity, even looking at the water on Earth itself. It's hard to, for me personally, to believe that those phenomenal dynamics and superstructures could actually exist in reality in an expanding universe that looks like it had an a starting point in the Big Bang. So all those dynamics taken in totality, there's no way for that to occur unless it was set into motion. And the problem that the atheists and the nihilists have is that they can't possibly comprehend an intelligence, uh, omnipotent deity, a singular power within the universe that's so intelligent and so omniscient 
and absolutely powerful that he could have the central time in eternity and the position within the background of reality that the universe is expanding into to have so much complete influence over our lives and over existence that this God or this deity could create and influence and direct the sophistication of the universe. It's just for them to, they can see the universe, but they cannot come to grips with the magnitude of the reality of God that would have the position, the power and the intellect and the actual phenomenal capability to invent and bring into being a universe. So it's easier for them just to imagine that it popped into existence from nothing. So it comes down to the, the very crucible of human intellect and understanding. And it really brings into view ourselves in this whole equation and the microscopic and the macroscopic scope of all that's happening. We have, we are here in existence in a very peculiar way, having come into the fossil record in a very peculiar way. So you have Earth's fossil record just laying out, and then suddenly there is just human beings. And many different religious organizations and scientists and different proponents of Darwinism and evolution and nihilism have worked very hard, even created false evidence, it turns out, to support the idea that there was a Cro-Magnon man or a caveman or some kind of link, some kind of link species that linked humanity to the, to like a, an ape ancestor that we evolved upward through through no act of God, just through you know the preponderance and the explosion of the universe and the, and the sun blazing and the, and the stars aligning somehow a snail became a possum and a possum became an ape and an ape became a man over billions and trillions of years. So this question of understanding our own nature really comes into view. And in my point, uh, my perspective, a man entered it, enters into the fossil record fully formed, and you go right from the point where man falls from the garden of Eden, the fall of man, and Adam and Eve end up face-planting into the, uh, the, the wilderness of the world and having children. From that point on, you're going to have the entrance of the civilization, the entrance of human civilization. 10,000 years ago, you're going to have the Ur of the Chaldees, you're going to have the different tribes of man expanding across the face of the earth, you're going to go right to the Bronze Age, and, and history is going to unfold instantaneously within the last 10,000 years. But before that, there was no man in the world, as it were. So that's what it comes, what it comes down to. I mean, it comes down to an ability to understand what's at play and to view nature itself as an effect or an outcome or a secondary event with a primary cause or nature itself is just a continuance of banality of nothingness so the universe is really just a cytoplasm or a great blob of of matter and a cosmos that is ultimately going to die out and ultimately the universe will come to nothing but just be an, an expanse of void of open time space that has no actual deliberate intention and so ultimately our lives mean nothing we're just fruit flies with a 24-hour life cycle and we come in and out of existence without any meaning at all and ultimately you know you just have to please yourself ultimately you're just an animal who has to feed your appetites and, and uh, that, that's why we see that Darwinian, Darwinian theory was used to justify Hitler's very like sinful and vile move towards the 
the liquidation of the people who thought were inferior. Not only did Hitler have a book of Darwin's book that he was very influential to him, but he also had a book by Elena Blavatsky and Elena Blavatsky's uh, works were something that we'll come into discussion later on. We'll discuss in greater detail. I think her book was called The Secret Doctrine by Helena Blavatsky. She was a well-known median or fortune teller at that period. She may, may even have met Hitler because she was in vogue. She was kind of a um, popular figure to have seances with. And she had a, a whole theory about root races and the inferior races um, and I think that comes into discussion too uh, his views of what he viewed as, you know, human human beings who were really just lesser evolved animals, and they weren't really connected with the super race or the you know higher evolved beings, and and that comes into discussion too because evolution seems to take God out of the equation, take morality and justice and mercy, and take them all off the table. And it just leaves a will to power in a meaningless, nothing universe where nothing matters except for, you know, in this case, Hitler's will to just, you know, clean, clean the, clean the species of anything he thought were mongrel races. And, and since there is no God, and and since he was evolved at the highest pinnacle of human intelligence, it was his right to make these decisions to eliminate other other whole civilizations and that's kind of what you're left with when you have no morality no moral center no actual understanding of the nature of god's intention for the universe and, you, and therefore you're just left in the void of your own understanding to try to to sort you know a meaningless universe out on its own so the most disgusting actions could be thought of as meritorious or heroic and that's kind of what you're getting with the evolution theory too. You're going to be evolutionary guys out there who think that it's their job to save the world from the human virus. So you can see this whole thing, this whole nihilism and atheism and godlessness is setting itself up again for men who think that they have it within their minds to know what's right to save the world. And they can, in their short lifespans, can calculate the measurements and the temperatures of the earth and the, the you know, the need for the world to have more or less Arctic ice. And, 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 and all this is just a depraved, like, uh, thrashing against death because they're, they're trying to save the species. And they can't even admit that the species and the universe and the world itself is brought into being by a higher being. Than them. So they've taken it upon themselves to become God and to try to make judgment, to rule the world, to save the environment. It's just absurd because they're nihilists. They don't believe in anything. They don't believe that anything matters. So how, and to, to, in some extent, it's just a Hitlerian urge to control the environment. Your backyard, your, your, you know, your, your, your field where you plant your crops is now suddenly in the environment. And, and the globalists have, have taken everything. Since they're the protectors of the environment, they've taken the the hubris and taking it upon themselves to t have the role of the arbiter of all space across the, uh, the, the, the world here and to protect it from people who are, you know, farming and, and living and trying to prosper. And so ultimately a, a way to crop back and, and get towards global population control. We're looking at the globalist use of scientific information and their position within academia as the premier echelon of world knowledge and scientific understanding and the scientific community. I have my fingers up in quotation marks. We, they're presupposing that they have the only 
logical analysis, the only sane conclusion to draw from is their religious devotion to their presupposition. So Darwinian theory relies on this idea that all species must have converged from this central root of some amoeba, some organism, some plankton long ago, and and sprouted off in all these different directions, and and all these different life orbs evolved out of this one kind of tiny uh, single-celled organism, and we know that that is just impossible at this point when we look at microbiology. So we're going to look at this discussion that would uh, took place between Eric Metaxas and Stephen Meyer, Dr. Stephen Meyer, at, and this is at a forum called Socrates in the City, and they discuss this discuss in depth the different kind of permutations that this conversation takes. And there's no doubt that life forms have been adapting on planet Earth for a very long time, and we'll get into that kind of conversation about how that went, and to understand that creationists who hold to this idea that the whole episode of, of dinosaurs and Jurassic, you know, Cretaceous eras and all these different kind of eras within our fossil record had taken place within the last 10,000 years are just not really reasonable or rational ideas, but that the idea that that the whole event of life on Earth itself has been something that's been sprawling over many millennia and has taken on many different forms and, and life has taken many different forms in that time and that mankind finds itself within that fossil record within the last 10 to 50,000 years of history and rising up from that point to become the, uh, the apex species, if you will. So let's listen to this conversation with Stephen Meyer, Dr. Stephen Meyer. But um, a, a question of how, how long the time scale is involved in okay. the change that okay. has occurred. But the, but the basic idea, just so yeah. everybody's tracking, the basic idea of change over time, that life forms have changed over the uh, millennia, eons, is not generally disputed. Not generally disputed. And that uh, intelligent design... We're and, certainly not and, disputing and evolution. And every kind of evolution right. would say that that happened. Right, exactly. Okay. Second meaning of evolution is the idea of common ancestry. And that can refer to uh, uh, universal common ancestry, the idea that all organisms are connected by what Darwin called descent from modification from this one single simple form, simple primordial form way back when. Or it could be a more limited thesis that certain groups of organisms are related by common ancestry. But the Darwinian idea was that the picture, the history of life is best represented as a, a, as a kind of tree of life. And he, he actually drew a tree in the origin to depict this, where the branches at the top of the tree represent all the forms of life that exist today. The trunk or the root of that tree represents that first primordial form, and the ones that only made it halfway up are the ones that got extinct. So it's a, it's a visual depiction of his idea about the, the history of life. And, um, and intelligent design is not challenging that either, although there are advocates of intelligent design who are skeptical about that. Right. And in fact, there are sci other scientists who are not. So, you, so you'd consider even common descent to be a theory, not necessarily. It's definitely a theory. A theory. It's, a theory. it's an attempt okay. to interpret certain facts that we have left okay. behind, okay. and, and it was certainly no one saw that whole history. Right. So it's a reconstruction right. based on the facts that are left behind, and it's one of many possible reconstructions. Um, but it's, it's not what intelligent design is challenging either. It, the intelligent design is challenging the third meaning of evolution. And that's the idea that there is an unguided, undirected process known as natural selection acting on random mutations that has produced all the forms of life we see, but also has produced the appearance of design that all biologists acknowledge, or nearly all biologists acknowledge. Richard Dawkins, the 
world's foremost spokesman for so-called neo-Darwinism, the modern textbook version of Darwin's theory, says that life is, uh, that, that biology, rather, is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. How clever of them. It's, it is the counterintuitive nature of the Darwinian idea. Right. That things look, yes, they look designed. Right. It's that beautiful structure of the coiled nautilus or those intricate molecular machines or the, uh, uh, the, 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 the chambered structure of the heart right. with all its, its uh, plumbing and, and wiring. Um, <clears throat> many, many things in biology look as though they were designed, but the idea is that they were produced by an undirected, unguided process that produced the appearance of design. Right. So they would say natural selection has the power to mimic the natural selection mimics the powers of designing right. intelligence, but it is not designed or guided in any way. Thus, the leading proponents of Darwinism will say that we have design without a designer. We have the appearance of design. Is that what it's called, blind Darwinism? Well, sometimes it's called the blind watchmaker hypothesis, okay. after the title of one of Dawkins' famous books. Okay. And so intelligent design is challenging that, and the, and the title, or the, the, the term intelligent design, was selected intelligently, if you will, to make clear which of those three meanings of evolution were challenging explicitly. Okay. We think things that there are certain features of biological systems that were actually designed, and you can tell by examining the scientific evidence. Okay, so just uh, so that everyone's tracking with you and so that I'm tracking with you, I'm going to repeat back to you what you just said, sure. but not tonight. Not tonight. Um, <laughs> I, because I think that in the popular... Um, well, popular culture, these distinctions are never clearly made. You would get the idea that there are two theories. One theory is that uh, we were created 11,000 years ago, and shazam, here we are. Uh, the other theory is the scientific theory that says everything happened uh, by random forces and that we evolved out of the primordial soup. And here we are, and there is absolutely no God involved in that process. But what you're saying now, and uh, obviously what I've, I've read about, is that there, there are so many variations between those two poles. And so intelligent design, as I understand it, is um, says that, yes, this happened. There were trilobites uh, four billion years ago, and... Uh, Things have, quote-unquote, evolved. Things have changed. Maybe I don't want to use the word evolved because it's a little bit loaded. But things have, in fact, changed. We can see this. Uh, we can observe this in, in the fossil record, basically. Uh, but uh, blind uh, Darwinists, neo-Darwinists, would say there is no way that that could have been directed. There was no God involved in that process. They say that adamantly. No designer or intelligent agent okay, of any no kind. no agent. It right. was just utterly random and it was something that... I, Eric, I prefer the term undirected or undirected. mindless. Okay, uh, and and, uh, and why? You, well, because you could have something that's random that appears to be random mm -hmm. to us that actually has a hidden hand behind it. And the, okay. the Darwinians insist that the appearance of design is an illusion. Now, right. if it's an illusion, it follows logically that the process that produced the appearance of design was not mindful. It was right. unguided and undirected. Right. And, and so that's the crucial tenet. And the, the, this idea is actually hard-baked into the logic of Darwinism. When you go to the third chapter of The Origin of Species, Darwin uses an interesting analogy to artificial uh, breeding experiments that you know, ranchers and farmers have been doing from time immemorial, mm -hmm. where where uh, uh, a farmer or rancher could choose a particular trait that he wanted to see maximized or enhanced in the, you might think of 
sheep in the far north of Scotland. And if you want to get the woollier breed of sheep, you would uh, you would select the wooliest males and the wooliest females to breed. And Darwin yes, would. And then generation after generation, you'd, you'd get woollier and woollier sheep. This is a well-known phenomenon. 19th century biologists knew, knew all about this. Darwin came along and said, well, what if you had a series of very cold winters such that all but the wooliest died out? Wouldn't you get the same effect? And so he, right. he proposed natural selection as an alternative to artificial selection, to intelligently driven selection. Right. So the mechanism was meant to exclude a designer in the very way he formulated the theory. Mm -hmm. And so that's, so that's been the big issue, design okay. or no design. So there, we're really taking a look at the very interesting discussion that's unfolding regarding the nature of the universe itself and life itself. So the question doesn't only surround the question of what, how did the moon and the Earth get into their gravitational um, circuit together, right? You know, because the moon is, has a cycle that moves around the Earth, and the Earth has its cycle that it moves around the sun. And you can imagine that those have been dynamics that have been in place for a very long time. They're the gravitational dynamics of our solar system that affect all the planets in our solar system. We have to look at that and question how that got arranged, where those materials and how those laws of physics, like gravitation and the issue you know, regarding trying to measure photons of light and trying to understand the atomic weight of elements and all these kind of concepts surrounding the inner mineral reality of the base background material and the stars that are burning that material within our universe. But then we get to Earth and we have to look at the interesting arrangement of water and the sudden green explosion of plant life in the ocean, in the rivers, and every field and stream all over the planet, and all the butterflies and all the worms that make up the soil, and all the, the horses and all the mammals and all the, this, the, the creatures that fill up the sea. We have to ask ourselves how such highly elaborate, complex, and sophisticated orders of life have come into being, and how that those processes could exist. And evolutionists, these Darwinians, they want us to believe that, that salmon could try to swim upstream to find their actual original place of birth when they were an egg, so that they can either swim upstream to find that location, reproduce, or die in the process. That those kind of forces within our instincts, within our nature, within our live, you know, our species and our biological forms, our physiology, if you will. And even all these terms and all these sciences that we've just now in the last hundred years begun to develop to study these questions, that all these complexities of life and existence could have just arose into spontaneous existence, ex nihilo, out of nothing, with no intelligent guidance whatsoever. And it takes us back to the question of the gene, the genetic material itself, the mechanics of the genetic material that are so closely wound it goes far beyond a clock. I'm talking about an Apache super server, the kind that you would find in rows in the NSA as they try to make a record of all electronic data that happens in the world, practically. So you can imagine that a blind Apache supercomputer worker who can somehow put together, by random chance, a supercomputer. I mean, this is the kind of level of sophistication we're finding within the living cells. And th let's go back to the conversation, and we'll look at that more. We'll look at that as Eric Metaxas and um, Dr. Stephen Meyer go into this deeper discussion about the nature of the physical complexity, the sophistication of the organisms and how Darwinian theory is helpless to try to explain how those orders of elaborate information systems could come into being. Well, I guess what I find so fascinating by this and one of the reasons I was so happy to get you to come here is that 
it's ironic, I would say, at least ironic, that the scientific establishment today is as hidebound in a way, and as I said earlier, cal calcified in their ideology, that they're not even willing to be slightly open to the possibility that there might be an intelligent force. Uh, and so they have been tremendously dismissive, as I understand it, of the intelligent design movement. I mean, you've lived this. Why do you think that is? Well, I have a friendly debating colleague who is a Darwinist, Michael Ruse, who says that uh, he's written an important book in which he explains that Darwinism has functioned as something of a secular religion for many scientists. And many scientists, I think, uh, have had a difficulty distinguishing what you might call materialistic philosophy from the enterprise of science itself. So if you have a theory that has non-materialistic implications, or which challenges theory that does have decidedly materialistic implications, there's an implied threat to a deeper worldview or metaphysical understanding right. of reality, and I think all of us respond when our fundamental belief systems are challenged, right. sometimes with some passion So and their zeal. objections are irrational and religious. I wouldn't say they're irrational, but I think that the level of, uh, of uh, response is, or the, the passion of the response is understandable from this, because of the, the big issues that are in play. Um, are you naturally this kind, or do you just realize that you, you, have, to, you have to be diplomatic? Um, I have to say, no, that it's uh, the more the more I have looked at it, I've I've been staggered by the. Um, well, how do I put it? The, the the lack of scientific rigor in that kind of thinking, or or maybe well, I, I can give logic. you a number of it. You know, some of the the, the week my book was released, uh, the, it was released on this Ju book. This most recent one, June 18th, earlier yeah. than summer. Uh, by three o'clock in the morning, there were about a dozen of these one-star hostile reviews, and some of the turns of phrase were just choice: mendacious intellectual pornography, right? Steaming pile of pseudoscience, that you know, uh, that kind of thing. So that's uh, great. By people who clearly had read the book very carefully, and uh, yeah. Yeah. So, right. the, the day after the book was released, there was a 9,400-word review on June 19th. Now, the book is 400 pages yeah. plus with notes, and and so you can. Th th this is uh, struck a nerve. Yeah. There were people lying in wait. So, well. Uh, I'd say that's a compliment. Um, I think that the other thing that one hears, um, and also I have heard it, uh, is that this is not science, and, and, and what these people seem to do, and again, I, you don't have to take a position on what you believe, but the idea that, that they're so closed-minded that they would simply say it's not science and are unwilling to discuss it, um, I guess I wonder what they think science is, because if, if logic and evidence leads you to surmise that yes, perhaps there was uh, intelligence behind this, that there's design, it's, it's a logical and a scientific conclusion. Um, so to say that you can't, you can conclude anything but that is is just strange to me. And it seems to me that they have this idea that anything that kicks against, um, that shakes up this materialist right. ideology, right. really religion, right. is unacceptable. And so they say it's not science. And because most of these folks are part of the powerful uh, scientific establishment, they can they can say that. So I guess I want to ask you, um, what to you, what what is science to you? Well. 
this is part of what I, I studied in my dissertation years in Cambridge. That it turns out that there's a, a lot of talk about the scientific method, but it, but it turns out there are there are actually many different scientific methods. And I studied very intentionally, uh, very consciously, the, the method that Darwin used in reconstructing the ancient past. Uh, discussions of biological origins are, in the end, discussions of natural history. And there's a particular method of scientific reasoning that scientists use when they're trying to study events in the remote past. You can't make a trilobite re-emerge under controlled laboratory conditions. So the kind of science that bench physicists or chemists do in the laboratory is not going to be applicable to studying the ancient past. What Darwin did was pioneer essentially a method of forensic science, where the clues that are left behind are used to reconstruct what happened in the ancient past. And he had an important rule of reasoning, which was that if you're trying to ex explain an event in the past, you want to invoke causes which are, as, he, as uh, his mentor Charles Lyell put it, now in operation. You want to invoke causes that are known to have the power to produce the effect in question. Now, I had become fascinated in the mid-80s with this problem of the origin of biological information. It turns out that organisms are chock full of digital codes stored in the DNA molecule and other forms of information stored elsewhere. And there is a complex information processing system at work inside organisms that allows them to function and survive. So if you want to build a new cell, if you want to build life in the first place, or if you want to build an animal, you have to have the evolutionary process would have to produce a great deal of information. But that was the very question that was bringing a lot of evolutionary theories to a point of impasse. And so I began to think about this. What is the cause now in operation that produces digital code, that produces information? And I realized there's only one, and that cause is intelligence or mind. In other words, what we know from our uniform and repeated experience, the basis of all scientific reasoning, is that intelligence produces information, whether we find it in a hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or a section of software code. Whenever we find information and trace it back to the source, we always come to a mind, not a material process. So I realized that by using Darwin's own method of reasoning and his key principle of scientific reasoning, we could make a, a very rigorous scientific case for intelligent design. So when people say it's not science, I want to say, well, well why? Uh, we're, it's based on scientific evidence, and we're using a, an established method of scientific reasoning, in fact, the very method that Darwin used. If the theory of intelligent design isn't scientific, by that same logic, then Darwinism would have, Darwinism would have to be excluded from that same designation. Mm. I'm sorry, could you repeat that? <laughs> You said you were fascinated by something in the mid-80s. I remember yeah. that. And, uh, I, uh, it's funny, in the mid-80s, I was fascinated with the Eurythmics. I don't know if you've heard of them. Um, in any case, well, before we get to your book now, I wanted to, um, actually, uh, to be honest, I was not fascinated by the Eurythmics at all. Um, to, uh, before we get to your book, I want to ask you uh, about irreducible complexity. That's another one of these terms that gets thrown around. What you were just saying, essentially, is that the things that uh, exist, these organisms that exist, are too complex, probably too complex, to simply have appeared. And it seems that something with that much complexity, that much information, and when you say information, you mean... Well, digital code. Yeah. Watson and Crick, 1953. They elucidate the structure of the famous double helix, yeah. uh, the, the DNA molecule. Four years later, Crick proposes something called the sequence hypothesis, which is 
uh, was the recognition that there are four chemicals, they're called bases, mm -hmm. that run along the spine of the DNA that function like alphabetic characters in a written language right. or digital characters in a machine code. And, and since then, we've learned that that information is directing the construction of mechanical parts. That part of the recording gets a little bit fuzzy, but it's going to start to break down how the mechanics within each individual living cell within the tissue replaces individual parts within the cell and how there's different mechanics and vehicles and different multiple, myriad proteins and a complexity of different compartments within cells producing different chemicals, doing all kinds of different, it's almost like a tiny city. And to have those cells be able to reproduce and to have those cells be able to tell which cell is eye tissue, which cell is skin tissue, which cell is the liver tissue, and, and, and for these genetic materials to be able to constantly reproduce these cells within your body is absolutely mind-blowing biochemistry, and it also is completely unexplained by the Darwin or any of these evolutionary evolutionists who suggest that these systems could somehow just auto-evolve auto out of nothingness into these highly mind-boggling complex systems. So we're going to have to get into this discussion because it looks like that evolution theory begins to dissolve and to disintegrate and could no longer explain why biological life exists. In order to address this whole question, the prospect of there being really a Darwinian delusion that we've been under for the last, I don't know, 80, 100 years, and I think in the future we'll look back at this era as kind of like a, a Stone Age uh, era within our scientific understanding of biological systems. But in order to kind of like break that down some more, we have this discussion here. Again, it's Dr. Stephen Meyer and Dr. David Berlinski having an interesting chat, and we'll just listen in. I have to add that Michael, uh, Dr. Michael Behe is also in on this discussion, and he's crucial to this discussion, um, and he actually was one of the original proponents of intelligent design. So yeah, Dr. David Behe is also in on this discussion. There's three different de definitions of evolution, and, and the second one, I think, created a little bit of a stir when, when the idea that, that we don't have an issue with common descent or common ancestry, and explain that. Does, uh, that doesn't mean that you believe that all of us have come from uh, all the kinds uh, have come from a similar kind, or does it? I want to let you speak to that. I, I have an issue with, with universal... Yeah, I think I've got, they got me hooked up, David, but uh, I have an issue with it. I know too much about fossils, for example. Um, the major groups of organisms come suddenly into the rock record. Uh, the insects, the, 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 the phyla uh, in, in the Cambrian, um, the, uh, the, the, I used to say to my students, you shall know them by their euphemisms. The Cambrian explosion, the marine Mesozoic revolution, the angiosperm sperm big bloom, the mammalian radiation. Um, I, I don't think there's good evidence for universal common ancestry. But that the, the point I was making is that that's not what the theory of intelligent design is addressing. We're addressing a different question. We're addressing a more fundamental issue of whether there is or is not design in, in life and in the universe and whether or not you can tell um, from, from the scientific evidence. So there's three facets of Darwinism, change over time, universal common ancestry, and, and and the idea that a purely undirected mechanism produces the appearance of design. We're taking on that third, and we think most fundamental important proposition. That once we get that one settled, the rest of the stuff will fall in place. Mike, do you want to jump in on that at all? Uh, yeah. Uh, the reason uh, we focus on just the point of intelligent design, or at least my reason, is that it's the easiest. It's the easiest. If you uh, can remember to my talk, I showed the Far Side cartoon with uh, the jungle trap. And you can ask yourself a whole 
whole lot of interesting questions that you'd like to know the answer to. Like, who made that trap? You know, maybe it was native of the jungle. Maybe it was one of the explorers. You know, and the, the guy who turned around and said, I wasn't in front. I didn't want to be in front. Or when was it made? Maybe it was made yesterday or a month ago. Uh, so you can ask a lot of who, what, when, where, how questions, and you need more information to answer those. But simply looking at the system right there in front of you, you look at that trap and immediately you know it was designed. Because the evidence for design is the system itself. The history of the system and so on is, is an interesting question, uh, but you can tell that something was designed just, just by essentially looking at it. And so it's the easiest question to address. It's also the one that the evolutionists, the Darwinists, most want to avoid. They'd be happy to talk about any other question except how in the world could these complex machines and, and systems uh, have come about without intelligence. Because undirected natural cause is the foundation of Darwinian theory and science. Absolutely. So, Dr. Blinsky? Well, if you'll permit me, I have a slightly different perspective on that question, but I think the question is essential. <laughs> um, just imagine you're walking in the desert. And you're walking with a Darwinian biologist, and you come across a termite mound. You know, termite mounds are fairly complicated structures. They have many tunnels. They have elaborate construction. You say to the Darwinian biologist, how did that come about? And he says, well, the termites made it. Good answer. The termites did make it. The termites are perfectly capable of making termite mounds. You go a few, a few miles further and you come across a nuclear fusion reactor. A massive thing sitting there in the desert, gleaming pipes, ducts, ceiling, waterworks, producing steam, generating electricity. And you turn to the Darwinian biologist and uh, you say, you know, here we are in the desert, there's a nuclear fusion reactor. How did that come about? And the guy says, well, termites made it. <laughs> You know that's not the right answer. <laughs> you just know that's not the right answer. But the interesting case, the interesting case is one intermediate between these two. You're in the desert again, and you see something. Archer, all I'm going to tell you, you see something. And you turn to the Darwinian biologist and say, how did that appear? And the guy says it was the Darwinian process. What's wrong with that answer? which is the answer that has been classically given by Darwinian biology. What's wrong with that answer is the description, I saw something, is not complete enough, it's not specific enough, so that any answer is logically possible. In that sense, when Darwin proposed a mechanism for evolution in 1859, he was looking through the wrong end of the telescope. Because we had not, 150 years later, been able to specify the structures in the cell with that degree of sophistication and precision that would enable us to say, yes, that was a Darwinian process. Darwin was looking through the wrong end of the telescope. So are Darwinian biologists. The question that Darwin attempted to solve may be perhaps solved in 500 years. Now is not the time when it admits of a solution. We have not been able scientifically or rationally to describe the structures that we see, certainly not in molecular biology. The only honest thing that we can say is they're stupefying in their complexity. But if they're stupefying in their complexity, we cannot characterize that complexity. There is no theoretical model that is adequate to the task of explaining their emergence. That's a logical point. I think it's a powerful point. And what you're saying is you don't need to be a scientist to grasp that. It is in your face. And in fact, all the mountain of words and theory does is obscure the obvious. I think that's largely true. Anybody who's looked in the eyes of an infant knows that's true. No way to characterize the intelligence that one sees there.
Can I cue David up on another aspect of this common ancestry question? Um, the poster child of uh, transitional intermediate forms in Darwinian biology today is the the um, transition from a, a, a hippopotamus-like land-dwelling creature to uh, the, the modern whale. And uh, uh, David has asked some, I think, penetrating questions about the plausibility of that having to do with the anatomical changes that would be required. What, what could you say about that? I, I, I've been thinking about this and, and uh, remarking casually about this for about 20 years, ever since I first heard this incredible scenario that the whale, huge big thing, lives in the ocean, had its origins in some dim, dweebish, uh, land-going, uh, grass-munching creature. Uh, I said on the internet once it was probably a cow, and everybody, oh no, what do you know? It's not a cow at all, it's a moose. I don't care what you call it. The question is, what does it take to transform a land dwelling creature into a sea dwelling creature or if you want an analogous uh, question what does it take to transform a 1976 chevrolet camaro into a submarine <laughs> it's the same question <laughs> it's the same question or an ape to a man no, this question is more is more more specified because we have a much better intuition about the changes. We know just what it would take to take a Camaro and make a submarine a whole lot of work. But my question wasn't that this story was plausible or implausible. I have no interest in that question. My question was rather, do we have any quantitative measure of the number of changes, just anatomical changes? After all, we take a cow or a moose, the first thing we got to do is make it waterproof. How do we go about making a mammal waterproof? Not a simple business. The skin is a complicated organism. How do we teach it to breathe 500 miles under the water? How, how far down do whales go? I'm in the ballpark, right? <laughs> How do we get its blow spout or whatever those things use to the top of its head from the bottom of its head? How do we give? How do we persuade this creature to give up eating grass and go munch whatever whales munch? Can we come up with a numerical estimate of the number of changes? And I said, you know, I have no idea. These are very complicated questions in morphology and uh, comparative anatomy. But I was able to say, well, you know, back in the envelope, about fifty thousand. <laughs> say it's wrong. Say it's five thousand. 500,000. I don't know, but you don't know either. The point is, the point is, when you go to the paleontological textbooks, the question, how many fossils do we see that fit this pattern? And how many fossils might we expect rationally to fit this pattern? That question is never asked. Never asked. You go to the, the leading experts on chordate, uh, paleontology, James Carroll, a wonderful scientist. I looked through his textbook, yeah, I understand there are all sorts of intermediates like Ambulocetus natans that have been discovered. And those are wonderful confirmations of Darwinian theory. There is an intermediate sequence, but there are only seven of them. If there are 50,000 changes, what happened to the remaining 49,000 changes that should be in the fossil record? Can we explain that away? Is it plausible? It is plausible. My point is the, que the question is not properly asked. It's a sign of intellectual flabbiness in Darwinian theory. One of many. Okay, guys, we're going to end at 9.15. We're going to make ourselves more available. I want to say we're going to throw Ray to the Lions. Here we've got this panel of three, and then it's going to be Ray alone on Tuesday. So you're going to have all those text messages to chew through and, yeah. and get after it. But Ray is a very capable scientist and uh, philosopher and able to do that with us. Now, here's the last two questions I want to ask. Uh, one, what is the best argument against intelligent design? Look around. <laughs> People, is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Go ahead. Well, Mike. The argument from evil comes up yeah. quite a bit. One, and, and, and one of the things that's not well, – go ahead, Mike. We can expound on that? Yeah, why, why did my mother die? I've had people ask me that, and they say, you say that this was designed. My mother died of cancer last year. How could that be designed? Yeah. How could an intelligent, especially a benevolent designer, as the Christian would represent, or the theologian, be any part of this design? So it's a really a question of theodicy, uh, more than it is a question of uh, creation. They're of, they're of a part, these questions. We find it very difficult to reconcile ourselves with the world as it is. There's no question that as human beings we do. Uh, sin and suffering are overwhelming. We were talking can today. I, can I take a stab at that from uh, about the rhetorical framing of that. Uh, the, the, that question is put to us. Obviously, raises a theological question. There's an artificial restraint on the debate that says that anything that has a theistic implication is not scientific. You know, so people are they, they think when they raise that question that there's a kind of a gotcha for anyone who's in favor of intelligent design. But I think to answer that you have to bring in a theological perspective. And I think the the uh, Judeo-Christian biblical perspective is that you ought to expect two things in life, not one. You ought to expect evidence of design, but you ought to expect evidence of decay as well. There's something wrong with the world that wasn't intended. And if you if you're artificially pre uh, prevented from from uh, from from giving a theological answer to what is in essence a theological question, then the ID perspective always looks deficient. But if we get rid of that artificial restraint and say, we're going to follow the truth wherever we happen to find it, whatever disciplinary heading it falls under, whether that's science, philosophy, theology, I think there are, there, there are reasonable, coherent uh, uh, perspectives on that. It's an even better answer. It's an answer to the question, why is man's lot so miserable? Where wert thou when I created the universe? So you're saying the question that God himself asked to Job, where yeah. art thou? And so who is this that darkens counsel with words yeah, without exactly. knowledge? Exactly. That will do as well as any other answer, right? I mean, there are questions we can't answer. Yeah, it's interesting. One of the other famed uh, neo-atheists uh, today is, we've already mentioned him, is Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens. And I was recently in a room with Hitchens where he himself said, uh, to your point, Steve, uh, leaving the discussion about evidences for origins, if I was going to suggest there's a problem with your designer, it's the way that he lets this world drift to decay. But he said, I would agree that if the Christian story was proven to be true, it gives a compelling and acceptable explanation for the problem of evil, a congruent explanation of which I provide no other. Because I reject the Christian explanation, I therefore reject the whole thing out of hand. But he himself acknowledges if the theistic answer is true, it does answer the question that's presented to intelligent design. Coherent. It's yes, amazing some coherent. of the, the concessions that uh, are are granted on the ride home from the debate with these guys. I mean, I could tell you some interesting stories. Um, so the, the difference between the podium presentation and the, what, what one of my students called the four o'clock in the morning questions, they have them too. Yeah, it's true and for every participant in the debate. Yeah. So the conversation is going to continue to kind of bring us closer to this interesting perspective and we have to work hard to kind of like delineate the current academic dogma the the accepted absolute truth of their scientific conviction the the view the, the picture that's painted in their minds of all the scientific evidence seems to suggest a very complex and sophisticated series of chemical interactions in a very vast, almost, if it could, if it was possible, infinite open void of space, time, and all the raw minerals and resources of the raw matter that's kind of just 
spinning around the galaxy, our solar system, and the planets, and their moons, and the stars. And for this, for this, all this complexity and, and, and chemical sophistication, the Darwin, neo-Darwinists see prospect of random, mindless coupling of these particles into useful systems that could create cellular structures. And then these cellular, cellular structures mindlessly have coagulated or gathered themselves together in proteins, in amino acids, and have created systematic processes that create larger structures out of these cells, like organs. And then they, these organs themselves have gathered mindlessly together without direction from any, any intelligent being to form living organisms. And then these living organisms have found within their own structure the genetic mechanisms and sophistication and complexity to replicate. So not only have these organisms developed from a cellular structure to become from, cell, from cellular protein-based structures, they've gathered themselves up to create complex systems of organs. And then these organs have compiled themselves in the perfect alignment, perfect compilation, so that these organisms could be useful and could support higher functions. And so that organisms could develop nerve systems. And where do these nerve systems come from? We don't know. They just developed on their own without direction. And then not only that, but as these replicating systems with RNA and DNA are able to multiply. These organic systems were able to develop in so many different ways and replicate in so many different ways. And uh, some of these replications succeeded and were able to carry on and, and, and then ultimately reproduce. I don't know who they would reproduce with these successful organic structures because you would need a, a, a mate like DNA, a like comparable creature to, to, uh, multiply with but over time they see this replication of cellular structures as the beginning root of all life so worms grass moss deers birds fungus every living creature would have to have evolved out of these original cellular structures so you can see that the problem is understanding how that could occur and if like the uh the other speaker the on the audio clip was discussing they these scientists these neo-darwinians think that they'll eventually discover the processes and the systematic chemical abstractions that allowed for these mutations and allowed for these different life forms to occur and then ultimately they'll, they'll figure it out later on, but that it must have occurred because there can't be a designer, there can't be an intelligent guiding principle behind you know, living existence itself and, and living organisms. It just, there must be a, this must be a godless, mindless space and it just must have occurred auto-naturally and just popped out of, out of the soil and the, you know, the moisture and, and the, the slime of protozoic ages gone by and given enough time, we have owls and lizards and we have all these creatures. So what we're going to see over the next decade or two, as we break into what Darwin called his black box, the, the, the microbiology of the living cell, the tiny structures the tiny, complicated, super sophisticated chemical cities that live inside of each cell, we're gonna discover that each living cell is so sophisticated and so complex that it couldn't possibly have evolved organically on its own. It couldn't just have arisen ex nihilo out of nothing. So we see the fingerprint of the designer within, we, we see the, the signature of the watchmaker within the watch. So we can see that these components are all so interlaced, interconnected, that you can't take a single component or organ or, or, cell, or, 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 or a cellular process out of 
of a living being without the living being being paralyzed or impaired or unable to continue to live. These All these systems are so tightly knit and so integrated that they can't be removed. So that means they had to be built into place. So you can imagine it's even it's even harder now for the neo-Darwinists to really come to an acceptable conclusion because they couldn't imagine the designer when we were, we were just dealing with physical, exoteric, if you will, or macrocosmic changes within living creatures. For instance, the ability of an owl to turn white in the winter and brown in the summer. His, his, feather, his feathers change according to the season. So these are external adapt, adaptations within the actual biological physiology of the owl, but it doesn't take us anywhere near the sub-molecular, nearly invisible chemical processes that take take place within an organic body. So as we start to examine that scientifically, we're going to see that these systems are so well placed and so well programmed, if you will, with information that it's impossible, even given an infinite amount of time for a flower to just invent itself. Even if there were selection even if there were some bugs that liked that particular flower yeah i mean for in order for a, a species to select there has to be the prospect of a positive permutation within the genes for them to select and, and, and in order for there to be a positive permutation within the genes there has to be genetic mechanics at work tiny invisible sophisticated mechanisms that allow for one species to be the way it is and if you have small adjustments within that species this species was shorter and that year there was a drought and so that you know the shorter species could fit through between the tree line to get to the water and so all the larger species you know the larger animals died off and so that you were left with just smaller species even with these tiny changes within microbiology you can't ultimately get down to where you're writing and programming dna and where do you begin where, where does the dna program begin with that How do you begin to evolve genetic substances and genetic materials so that we can create whole new organisms? We're talking about building animals out of nothing but raw materials. And all these raw materials we can find in the universe, but the fact that they were knit together through genetic processes becomes the ultimate annihilation of neo-Darwinism. It begins to disintegrate right in your hands like so much sand. And people are going to hold on to this ideology, this religious perspective because it suits them because it's it's already worked into the global scheme of things the the uh, united nations and the the new world order and 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 those who who it's very fitting for them to think that there's really a pyramid and the most successful the mightiest species are on top and all the lesser creatures are on the bottom and 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 it really justifies like it said like we were talking about earlier the uh in the discussion, the audio clip discussed how Hitler was a proponent of Darwin and thought it, that it was right that that there really is only speciation, there's only only natural selection, there really, really is nothing else whatsoever in the in life to be considered of. There's no creation, there's no creator, there's no need for you know creatures to to be merciful to one another. You know, th- this is just a matter of eliminating all the weak genetic material out of the uh out of the human gene pool and so when that's what darwinism left in its wake it just left an empty materialistic void immoral amoralistic secular power pigs found that doctrine to be very useful so let's go on with this discussion and listen to another clip that we have we're going to get a little bit deeper into the the scientific debate and it's no longer scientific to be a darwinian it's no longer scientific to think that the universe just evolved 
all plant forms and all reptiles and amphibians and marsupials and all life forms are just just popped out of the furnace uh, the uh, the uh, out of the the, uh, the crucible of fire and ice and you know the electricity as lightning was formed on the face of the earth there was just nothing but primordial soup and slowly one after another the amoebas crawled out and those amoebas crawled up onto the beach and they became animals and they became elephants that theory is so far gone and is so completely eradicated is so completely destroyed by science itself that those who believe it are really exposing their not their ignorance but their religious devotion to a, a belief system that doesn't necessarily have any proof or evidence or any logic but it suits their world order they've been they've grown used to their academic hubris and making fun of and just putting down those who don't hold their view hold their dogma so i think that on some level those uh those people in academia are just used to being um scholastic fascists who get to to make fun of other people or to to look down or at other people who won't accept the uh the party line and won't toe the party line of scientific ideology so let's listen to this other clip here this really just goes to the power of propaganda and the ability for people to believe that what they really just want to believe. And once they, once you inform within yourself a certain and crystallize within your the, the construct of your thinking and your you know kind of belief systems, the ideological framework from which you view the world and operate and, and the lens through which you view the world, you, you, it's really hard to change this perspective and this this uh, crystallized perception within your thinking. So what we're doing is we're challenging that. And we have here Walter Vyeth, he's doing the clip, and he's going to discuss how improbable and, and impossible it is for life, even one single living cell, let alone hundreds of millions of, you know, a billion living cells within your body, within all the animals and the plants of the world, the sheer impossibility of a single living cell coming in, coming into being by it, on its own power without any without a creative force or without a, a plan or a design in mind. Let's just take a listen to Walter Weith's opinion on this. These the various molecules of life that had to form needed very different circumstances. For example, if you look at the amino acids, uh, you have different amino acids and each one of these amino acids has this NH2 group, this amino group over here. And this NH2 group had to, of course, be derived from this atmosphere, and it comes from the ammonia. But now, if you have ammonia in the atmosphere, then sugars don't form. So here is a big problem. Plus, you need a very acid environment in order for these to form, and then you would have to have only the right ones to form. And that would not happen, because when you pass these sparks through it, you get left-handed ones, you get right-handed ones, and you get all kinds of amino acids where the amino group is attached to any one of these carbons along the chain, and not necessarily to that first carbon next to this group over here, which is the carboxyl group. And so, if you have just one wrong amino acid somewhere in a chain, everything is non-functional. So here's a major problem, that you needed the right circumstances, plus you needed mechanisms of selecting just those amino acids which are useful to life. One wrong one in there, and 
you would have a problem. Plus, even if you get the amino acids, how do you get them to come together and join together? You need enzymes for that. That means you need a protein to make a protein. So who was first, the protein or the protein that makes the protein? See, it's a bit of a problem. The next problem is, if you want to have the building blocks of our DNA, what our genes are, consisted of, are formed of, then you need totally different circumstances. For these to form, you have to take all the nitrogen out of the atmosphere, change it into a cyanide solution, multiply that by 10, dissolve it in the ocean, and then you can get these molecules. But then you wouldn't get anything else. If you're going to make these sugars, again, as we spoke about earlier, that you need in the DNA molecule, for example, like the ribose, well, then you're not allowed to have ammonia. If you don't have ammonia, you don't have amino acids. So you would have to have many planets in order to create these things. No wonder science is saying it's not possible here, so maybe it happened in space. You have a theory there which is called panspermia. Now, this DNA molecule is another amazing story of life. Even if you get all the building blocks to form, how would you get it to form a string containing all the information that you need for life? How would you get it to do that? It has never, ever been demonstrated in a laboratory. It needs a very complex enzyme system that will form these high-energy bonds that are locked into this molecule. And the probability of these molecules forming is so remote so that we could say they are non-existent. So let's have a look at what the probability would be, for example, of a bomb exploding under a pile of wood going and then falling down from the sky and forming this perfect functional little house. What would the probability be? Well, the probability is very, very remote. Let's give it a very good probability, or a, a very poor one. In fact, it's even much worse than this. Let's say the probability is 1 in 10 to the power of 80. Hmm. Now, what is that? That sounds like a very small figure. 10 to the power of 80 is what physics claims is the number of particles in the entire universe. Particles. That means not only atoms, but subparticles. Electrons, hadrons, quarks, neutrons, protons in the entire universe. How many atoms in a pinhead? Billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions, right? So imagine how many atoms in the entire universe. It sounds mind-boggling, but it's only 10 to the power of 80. It's not a very big number when you look at it, but that is really a mind-boggling number. 10 with 80 zeros behind it. So that would be the probability. What would be the probability of a simple gene coming into existence by chance? Well... There are three nucleotides needed to code for one amino acid in a protein. And let's take a simple protein that has 100 amino acids. Your hemoglobin, for example, has 600 amino acids. So let's take a simple protein, 100 amino acids. You need 300 nucleotides in the right sequence. Hmm. What 
what's the probability of that happening by chance? Well, the probability is 10 to the power of 127. That is, unfortunately, boom! New York City has been established by a nuclear explosion. Do you believe that? You would have to have that kind of faith. Now, if we look at this DNA molecule, it is a masterly construction. It consists of these double helixes forming the framework of phosphorus molecules, then the bases in between, and in the sequence in which they occur, these bases, you have the information for everything that happens in the cell. Now, these genes we call the genotype. And when these genes are expressed, we call that the phenotype. All right, let me explain these terms. It's very important that we understand how science pictures the evolutionary events around the genetic system. The genotype consists of all the genes actually present in a zygote. That's a fertilized egg. So all the genes that I have, that's my genotype. But not all the genes that I have are expressed. So that which is expressed is my phenotype. So if you want to have a look at your phenotype, go and stand in front of a mirror. And you'll see it. That's your phenotype. Now there's a, a law in evolution which states the following. Natural selection can only operate at the level of the phenotype, never the level of the genotype. You got that? Repeat it. Natural selection can only operate at the level of the phenotype, never the level of the genotype. Why not? Well, let me illustrate with an example. Two people walk in wherever, game park, in a game park. And let's say there are wild animals around in the game park. And the one person is long and lean, and the other person is short and plump. And now a predator comes from behind the bush and attacks them. A lion, a bear, whatever you would like it to be. And they both take off like greased lightning. Which one is probably going to end up being a meal. The short fat one, right? Okay. So, short fat was the what? The phenotype. That's right. Short fat phenotype hasn't got a snowball's hope in hell against the lean mean phenotype. So, by natural selection, short fat goes, long lean mean stays. Is that correct? That's how it works. The animal is not concerned with all the other information in your genes. It's just interested in how you look and how fast you run. Is that correct? That's it. So natural selection does not work at the level of the genotype. So what does work at the level of the genotype? How are genes changed over time? Not by natural selection, but by mutations. That's right. And how do mutations take place? They are random, they take place by chance, 
And once they are expressed in the phenotype, then they can be selected for. Does that make sense? Now remember, Charles Darwin didn't know anything about this. Only so we're just going to give it a pause right there, and you can see where uh, Professor Walter Veith is going with this. If you want to hear more, you need to go do your own Walter Veith research and hear you know, some of the things he has to say. But the uh, argument from here is going to graduate and to develop, and it's going to be devastating. So that you can see that at the genetic level, at the microcosmic level, when it comes to uh, what we're learning about, living cells and microbiology, that these systems are so incredibly, unspeakably complex and sophisticated and elaborate in their scale that there's no possible chance that these systems could have evolved. And when we start to look at the prospect of mutations being the possible selection process by which genetics and microcosmic living systems. So we're talking about the uh, invisible to the naked eye biological construct of living cells, tissues, and enzymes, and chemistry within our bodies, and, and that of the uh, complete uh, morphology of the entire animal kingdom being unique in every insect and every frog, that all those complex systems could have somehow evolved and auto-created their own uh, phenomorphs into existence without some kind of guidance becomes such a an absurd prospect, so, such an outrageously ridiculous proposition that it really collapses in this temple of sacred, ideological, academic, scientific sorcery that all these universities are built on, and it serves them right in all their pomposity and all their ridiculous arrogance by which they imagine a world that just grew grass and flowers and butterflies and, and mammals and just these things just popped out of out of um into existence out of the the uh, backdrop of the cosmos and just somehow the cosmos itself just grew life forms like moss on this planet it is just absurd it's absurd to the highest order and we're starting to unlearn these kind of ways of thinking and these are these are the proponents of like Teilhard de Chardin, which we'll get into more later, and we'll discuss how he was involved with the Piltdown hoax, and we'll get more into how the United Nations is really reliant on these ideas of the the evolution of natural species through through us through selection or just you know through a mindless, undirected force of the universe that just created everything. But it's it's not God, it's not Jehovah, it's not the God of the Bible. There was no, uh, you know, seven epochs and seven uh, seven eras of creation or seven periods of creation like the Bible describes. And so they're really rejecting this whole idea at the United Nations and the globalists. And they're the same ones who are proponents of this idea of an endangered planet and the hysteria around, we have to save the planet, we have only 12 years left to live before we can reverse the damage of, of the human virus on the planet and, and you know, all these ideas. They're getting towards depopulation and just total fascistic autocratic control of the globe itself and taking away what we originally protected, getting us back to the, the serfdom, the, the Middle Ages, the, uh, the medieval period when you know you were just you know a life form like a slug on the land and the knights would ride through and and you know do whatever they wanted. You know, they would destroy the peasants or, or give them swords to fight or they would just, you, know, you were just basically part of the property of the land. And that's kind of what we're getting back to as we start to lose our constitutionally protected rights. And uh, 
our liberties here in the United States. And we need to stand up for that. We need to recognize the dignity of life and the profound genius of the Constitution and to push back on this kind of pseudoscience and this fake idea, these fake academic uh, propositions, which really just are declarations of slavery. And they have no proof. They have no proof that the Cambrian explosion, that life forms can just explode into, into being. So you're going to go from plankton to brontosaurus, you know, brontosaurus and T-Rexes, and they can't figure out how that could happen. They have no basis to just, to how you know, to Darwin's theory is, is dissolving. So we need to kind of face up to that reality and recognize the deity and the creative power of God. And that's, that's the Almighty, that's Jehovah Jireh, that's, that's the God of the Bible. And though Islam and the Luciferians behind Freemasonry and the Luciferians behind Mormonism and all these other weirdo groups um, seek to find a way to to rationalize their insane ideology by just writing the role of God out of out of our lives and out of the, the textbooks and out of the curriculum of our schools for our school children, we need to remember what the truth is and, and be unafraid to remind the world that life is a consequence of intelligent design. There's no other way to look at it. I'll leave you with this little um, interesting explanation by, from uh, Dr. Michael Behe, and he's going to discuss the purposeful nature of design. And it's a very interesting philosophical and scientific breakdown of really what we're trying to get at by the, uh, the phenomenology of life and how that spectrum of sophistication cannot possibly be something that could just, like we, like we stated before, come into being without a cause. So let's listen to Dr. B here. In Kansas, um, and the Times wanted somebody to explain what is design and, and what is the reasoning behind it uh, for their readers. And so the, the point is that if you can explain it in an op-ed piece, you know, it, it's not all that hard to grasp. So, uh, so it's pretty straightforward. And the, the outline of my argument, I'm going to try to make five points today. The first point is going to be that design is not mystical. It's not something you have to close your eyes and raise your hands in order to grasp. Rather, it's deduced from the physical structure of a system. And the second point is that everyone agrees that aspects of biology appear to be designed. And when I say everyone, I mean even those people who most strongly oppose the conclusion that that appearance of design is, is real, uh, that it truly points towards design. And the people who disagree that the appearance is, is uh, true uh, usually have some other explanation that they think is correct. And the most popular one, uh, in academia anyway, is Darwin's theory of, of evolution. That is, uh, life developed by a series of random changes plus natural selection. And so my third point is going to be that there are problems with that idea. There are structural obstacles in other words, there's physical reasons to think that Darwin's mechanism cannot do what its, its fans think it can do. And, but if you 
read, you know, modern papers, magazines, look at TV, whenever you see a science show or a popular science magazine, uh, you'll often come across the claim that science has already shown that Darwin's theory can account for life as we know it. it, it, it we, it's been demonstrated already. And so my fourth point is going to be that those grand Darwinian claims rest on undisciplined imagination. Okay, not, not little Darwinian claims. It, it can explain a number of things uh, pretty well, but the grand Darwinian claims that it, it explains the overall structure of life uh, are, rest on imagination. And the fifth point, then, is, is going to be a, a summary point. It's going to be this, that right now, in the year 2014, we have in hand strong, positive evidence for the purposeful design of life, and yet little to no evidence that Darwinism can do what's generally claimed for it. So let's start out, let's go through those points one by one. Start out with the first one, that design is not mystical. Uh, it's deduced from the physical structure of a system. And in order to do that, let's first ask ourselves, well, what do we mean by intelligent design? What is intelligent design? And if you look in a dictionary, you'll see a number of definitions, but the pertinent one uh, is something like the following. That design is the purposeful or inventive arrangement of parts or details. And we can kind of uh, shorten that saying that design is simply the purposeful arrangement of parts. And that means that we deduce design, we infer that design has happened whenever we see parts that appear to have been arranged to accomplish a function. Well, that's, that's a bunch of words. It's oftentimes easier to grasp an idea if you can see an example. Uh, so let's look at the next slide here. Uh, don't know if you can see it too well, but this is a far side cartoon. And uh, let me try to point with a cursor here. And it, we see a troop of jungle explorers here. And the lead explorer here has been strung up and skewered. And this fellow here turns to this guy here and says, that's why I never walk in front. Okay, words to live by. Now let me assure you. Okay, uh, whoops. So, let me go back. Everybody here looks at this cartoon and immediately realizes that this was designed. This was not an accident. His death was intended. As a matter of fact, the humor of the cartoon depends upon you recognizing the design. It wouldn't be all that funny if he just fell over a cliff. So let's ask, how do you know that? How do you know that this was designed? Is it a religious conclusion? Probably not. I haven't been to this church before, but probably not. Um, no, you know that this was designed because you see a number of different parts. You see the wooden sticks, the, the vine, 
purposely arranged to fulfill a function. The purposeful arrangement of parts. So that's the point that we deduce design from the physical properties, the physical arrangement of parts. But there's one other point that I have to make about detecting design before we move on, and that's the following, that the strength of the design inference is quantitative. And by that I just mean that the more and more parts we have, and the more and more uh, closely they are arranged to uh, fulfill the function, then the more and more and more confident we can be in our conclusion of design. Now let's look at an example of that. Suppose you and a friend were walking out in, outside and you came across these mountains and your friend said, how do you think those mountains got there? And you would say, gee, I never did take that geology class. Uh, plate tectonics? Volcanic activity? I don't know. Well, most people would say, oh, that's, that sounds reasonable. There's no reason to think of anything else. But suppose you and your friend continued your walk uh, a long, long way away, and you came to New Hampshire, and you saw this mountain, and your friend asked you that same question. Where do you think this mountain came from? And now you would say, huh, look at that. Uh, this is actually a structure called the Old Man of the Mountain, and there are state workers on it trying to stabilize it. It was unstable. It actually fell down a few years ago. Uh, but you would say, like many tourists did, that, hey, you look at that, it looks like a, a face. There's a chin down at the bottom, and something that kind of looks like a nose in the middle, and a forehead towards the top. Do you think maybe some Paleolithic tribe might have gotten together and Hey, uh, nah, nah, it's, uh, maybe, but it's probably just some strange arrangement of rocks. You look at it from a different direction, it doesn't look anything like a face. Most people would agree. But then you and your friend uh, continue your, uh, your walk, and you come to this mountain. <laughs> and he asks the same question. Where do you think this mountain came from? And now, you'd never say plate tectonics or volcanic activity, at least for the faces here. Uh, As we look at Mount Rushmore. Even if you had never heard of Mount Rushmore before, anybody would conclude that these faces were purposely designed. They were put there by somebody who knew uh, what he wanted to accomplish. And the reason we conclude that is because we see more and more parts that are arranged, shaped the right way, placed the right way, to fulfill the function of conveying those images, the presidents of the United States. So that's the point that design is not mystical. We see it from the physical evidence, the purposeful arrangement of parts, and that the more and more evidence we have, the stronger and stronger uh, our conclusion of design can be. Now let's focus on the second point, that everyone, everyone agrees that aspects of biology appear to be designed. 
No, if, if you read Dawkins, it's not for aesthetic or, or other reasons. Uh, it's rather for engineering reasons. He writes a little further into the book that we may say that a living body or organ is well designed if it has attributes that an intelligent and knowledgeable engineer might have built into it in order to achieve some sensible purpose, such as flying, swimming, seeing. Any engineer can recognize an object that has been designed, even poorly designed, for a purpose, and he can usually work out what that purpose is just by looking at the structure of the object. Now what's he saying? He's saying that we recognize design by the purposeful arrangement of parts. So even Richard Dawkins agrees that that is how uh, we come to a conclusion of design. So we're going to just leave the episode right there. I think we're going to come back and do a part two because there's so much more information we can do and there's some more things we need to add. Like I said, I wanted to get into controversy with Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who was a, a, a Jesuit Catholic priest and a paleontologist and geologist, and he took part in the uh, discovery of the Peking Man, and, the, and it was it really became the Piltdown hoax, which they used the jaw of a boar and the skull of a monkey, and they tried to pretend like they had found the missing link that in biology that would connect mankind to monkeys, and this happened in my, was it the 60s or the 70s, and, and they used this as the precursor, they had it in a museum, and it was the precursor kind of scientific evidence, and there was whole books written on it that, and this was used as, uh, you know, the foray into connecting hu human beings to uh, other earth biology in a matter of you know, trying to create evidence for evolution theory. So it shows how committed they were in, the, in this scheme of, of globalism and probably in their personal convictions too that the earth is just kind of on autopilot and the universe is just you know happening on its own and that everything is just arising uh, and self-ordering out of nothing and that there's no designer and then later it was found that it was an obvious hoax later on when you know real later on when real trained scientists came into the picture it became clear that they had just put the pieces of other animals together to create this false evidence so we're going to get into that more next time and talk more about how the the delusion of darwinian theory is really a disturbing neurosis on the the thinking and the kind of the larger scope of human mass consciousness on the planet and the way that we view ourselves as 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 a populace and as as a, as a as a species on the planet and i think that it's useful to them to move us towards this idea that somehow a mankind is a pollution we should all just function within our own animalistic urges and our will to power and might makes right and the fittest to survive. And so you can have these guys like Bill Gates come out and try to sterilize populations of people in, in, uh, in Africa and even using some of these vaccines to kind of exterminate the population. They're getting towards this global population control and these mechanisms of the United Nations. Because, I mean, after all, these are just useless eaters, these are useless breeders, and, they, and they're really just taking up space on the planet. And, you know, we need, just need to cut them back the way you would, you know, use pesticides to, to kill the insects in your home. And this is the kind of thinking that arises out of this neo-Darwinism. And so it's important that we show you that it's 
dismantling, even as it's becoming the kind of the forefront of our thinking, and it's it's really a propaganda that we that's taken hold within our schools for the last fifty years and shaped these neo-Marxists thinking, you know, and, and it created this godlessness and this atheistic idea within academia, and and right as it's becoming a powerful force motivating, you know, the world, you know, world politics, and it's the underlying ideological framework that holds together this whole idea that these people that, that think that they're just going to live their life as their own their own god, their own deity, that they're the highest you know, intellect that they need to answer to right at that moment in time since 2013 we're now seeing the collapse of the actual scientific evidence around Darwinism so that we can see that that speciation and even the organization of material particles and atomic structures on the uh, on the, uh, the the chart of elements could not possibly come into existence without an original cause, and that original cause had to be someone outside the universe in a, in a grand scope. And so we're seeing that the evidence of God coming into play right in this interesting uh, moment in 2020. I think the academic community has no way to really deal with it. Look forward to you coming back again next time, and we'll address this in part two.